Chapter Twenty Seven of the Frozen Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Angela Jeffries. The Frozen Pirate by William Clark Russell. Chapter Twenty Seven. I encounter a whaler. I had been six days and nights at sea, and the morning of the seventh day had come. With the exception of one day of strong southwesterly winds, which ran me something to the northwards, the weather had been fine, bitterly cold indeed, but bright and clear. In this time I had run a distance of about six hundred and fifty miles to the east, and with no other cloths upon the schooner than her sprit-sail. I confess as the hours passed away and nothing hove into view i grew dispirited and restless but on the other hand i was comforted by the bright weather and the favourable winds and particularly by the vessel steering herself which enabled me to get rest to keep myself warm with the fire and to dress my food yet ever pushing onwards however slowly into the navigated regions of this sea on the morning of the seventh day I came on deck, having slept since four o'clock. The wind was icy keen, pretty brisk, about west by south. The movement in the sea was from the south, and rolled very grandly. There was a fog that way, too, that hid the horizon, bringing the ocean line to within a league of the schooner. But the other quarters swept in a dark, clear, blue line against the sky, and there was such a clarity of atmosphere as made the distance appear infinite. I went below and lighted the fire and got my breakfast, all very leisurely, and when I was done I sat down and smoked a pipe. It was so keen on deck that I had no mind to leave the fire, and, as all was well, I lounged through the best part of two hours in the cookhouse, when, thinking it was now time to take another survey of the scene, I went on deck. On looking over the larboard bulwark rail, the first thing I saw was a ship about two miles off. She was on the larboard tack, under courses, top sails, and main top gallant sail, heading as if to cross my bows. The sunshine made her canvas look as white as snow against the skirts of the body of vapor that had trailed a little to leeward of her, and her black hull flashed as though she discharged a broadside every time she rose wet to the northern glory out of the hollow of the swell with the curl of silver at her cutwater. My heart came into my throat. I seemed not to breathe, not to have saved my life could I have uttered a cry. So amazed and transported was I by this unexpected apparition. I stared like one in a dream, and my head felt as if all my blood in my body had surged into it. But then, all of a sudden there happened a revulsion of feeling suppose she should prove a privateer a french war-vessel of a nation hostile to my own though so wrought in me that i trembled like an idiot in a fright the telescope was too weak to resolve her i could do better with my eyes and i stood at the bulwarks gazing and gazing as if she were the spectre-ship of the scandinavian legend there were flags below and i could have hoisted a signal of distress but to what purpose? If the appearance of the schooner did not sufficiently illustrate her condition, 
There was certainly no virtue in the language and declaration of Bunting to exceed her own mute assurance. I watched her with the passion of anxiety, never doubting her intention to speak to me, at all events to draw close and look at me, wholly concerning myself with her character. The swell made us both dance, and the blue brows of the rollers would often hide her to the height of her rails. But we were closing each other middling fast, she travelling at seven, and I at four miles in the hour, and presently I could see that she carried a number of boats. A whaler, thought I, and after a little I was sure of it by perceiving the rings over her top-gallant rigging for the lookout to stand in. On being convinced of this, I ran below for a shawl that was in my cabin, and, jumping onto the bulwarks, stood flourishing it for some minutes to let them know that there was a man aboard. She luffed to deaden her way, that I might swim close, and as we approached each other I observed a crowd of heads forward looking at me, and several men aft, all staring intently. A man scrambled on to the rail, and with an arm clasping a backstay hailed me. "'Schooner ahoy!' he bawled, with a strong nasal twang in his cry. "'What ship's that?' "'The Boca del Dragon!' I shouted back. "'Where are you from, and where are you bound to?' "'I have been locked up in the ice,' I cried, "'and am in want of help. What ship are you?' "'The Susan Tucker Whaler, of New Bedford. Twenty-seven months out,' he returned. "'Where in creation got you that hooker?' "'I'm the only man aboard,' I cried, "'and have no boat. Send to me, in the name of God, and let the master come.' He waved his hand, bawling. "'Put your helm down. You're forging ahead,' and so saying, dismounted. I immediately cast the tiller adrift, put it hard over, and secured it, then jumped on to the bulwarks again to watch them. She was a Yankee beyond doubt. I had rather met my own countrymen.' but, next to a British, I should have chosen an American ship to meet. Somehow, despite the Frenchman, I felt to have been alone throughout my adventure, and so sore was the effect of that solitude upon my spirits that it seemed twenty years since I had seen a ship, and since I had held commune with my own species. I was terribly agitated, and shook in every limb. Life must have been precious always, but never before had it appeared so precious as now, whilst I gazed at that homely ship, with her main topsail to the mast swinging stately upon the swell, the faces of the seamen plain, the smoke of her galley-fire breaking from the chimney, the sounds of creaking blocks and groaning perils stealing from her, such a fountain of joy broke out of my heart that my whole being was flooded with it, and had that mood lasted, I believe I should have exposed the treasure in the run and invited all the men of the whaler to share it with me. They stared fixedly, little wonder that they should be astounded by such an appearance as my ship exhibited. One of the several boats, which hung at her davits, was lowered, the oars flashed, and presently she was near enough to be hit with a biscuit. But when there the master, as I suppose him to be, who was steering, sung out, "'Vast rowing!' the boat came to a stand and her people to a man stared at me with their chins upon their shoulders as if i'd been a fiend it was plain as a pike-staff that they were frightened and that the superstitions of the forecastle were hard at work in them whilst they viewed me they looked a queer company two were negroes the others pale-faced bearded men 
crept up in clothes to the aspect of scarecrows. The fellow who steered had a face as long as a wet hammock, and it was lengthened yet to the eye by a beard like a goat's hanging at the extremity of his chin. He stood up, a tall, lank figure, with legs like a pair of compasses, and hailed me afresh, but the high swell, regular as the swing of a pendulum, interposed its brow between him and me, so that at one moment he was a sharply lined figure against the sky of the horizon, and the next he and his boat and crew were sheer gone out of sight, and this made an exchange of sentences slow and troublesome. "'Say, master,' he sung out, "'what ye say the schooner's name is?' "'The Boca del Dragon,' I replied. "'And who are you, matey?' "'An English sailor who has been cast away on an island of ice,' I answered, talking very shortly that the replies might follow the questions before the swell sank him. "'Aye, aye,' says he, "'that's very well. But when was you cast away, bully?' I gave him the date. "'That's not a month ago,' cried he. "'It's long enough, whatever the time,' said I. Here the crew fell a-talking, turning from one another to stare at me, and the negro's eyes showed as big as saucers in the dismay of their regard. "'See here, master,' sung out the long man. "'If you hadn't been cast away more than a month, how come you clothed as men went dressed a century sin, hey?' The reasons of their misgivings flashed upon me. It was not so much the schooner as my appearance. The truth was, my clothes, having been wetted, I had ever since been wearing such thick garments as I met with in the cabin, keeping my legs warm with jack-boots, and I had become so used to the garb that I forgot I had it on. You will judge, then, that I must have presented a figure very nicely calculated to excite the wonder and apprehension of a body of men whose superstitious instincts were already sufficiently fluttered by the appearance of the schooner. When I tell you that, in addition to the jack-boots and a great fur cap, my costume was formed of a red plush waistcoat laced with silver-purple breeches, a coat of frieze with yellow braidings and huge cuffs, and the cloak that I had taken from the body of Mendoza. Captain, cried I, if so be you are the captain, in the name of God and humanity, come aboard, sir. Here I had to wait till he reappeared. My story is an extraordinary one. You have nothing to fear. I am a plain English sailor. My ship was the Laughing Mary, bound in ballast from Calau to the Cape. Here I had to wait again. Pray, sir, come aboard. There is nothing to fear. I am alone, in grievous distress and in want of help. Pray come, sir." There was so little of the goblin in this appeal that it resolved him. The crew hung in the wind, but he addressed them peremptorily. I heard him damn them for a set of curs, and tell them that if they put him aboard they might lie off till he was ready to return, where they would be safe, as the devil could not swim, and presently they buckled to their oars again and the boat came alongside. The long man, watching his chance, sprang with great agility into the chains, and stepped on deck. I ran up to him and seized his hand with both mine. "'Sir,' cried I, speaking with difficulty, so great was the tumult of my spirits and the joy and gratitude that swelled my heart, I thank you a thousand times over for this visit. I am in the most helpless condition that can be imagined. I am not astonished that you should have been startled by the appearance of this vessel and by the figure I make in these clothes.' But, sir, 
you will be much more amazed when you have heard my story. He eyed me steadfastly, examining me very earnestly from my boots to my cap, and then cast a glance around him before he made any reply to my address. He had the gauntness, sallowness of complexion, and deliberateness of manner peculiar to the people of New England, and though he was a very ugly, lank, uncouth man, I protest he was just as fair in my sight as if he had been the ambrosial angel described by Milton. "'Well, cook my gizzard!' he exclaimed presently, through his nose, and after another good look at me, and along the decks and up aloft, "'if this ain't miraculous, too!' "'Durned if we didn't take this hooker for some ghost-ship riz from the sea, "'in charge of a merman rigged out to fit her age. "'Ye all are all alone, air you?' "'All alone,' said I. "'Broach me every barrel aboard if ever I see sick a vessel,' he cried, "'his astonishment rising with the searching glances he directed aloft and low. "'How old be she?' "'She was cast away in seventeen hundred and fifty-three,' said I. "'Well, I'm durned. She's froze hard, sirree. I reckon she'll want a hot sun to thaw her. Split me, mister, if she ain't worth sailing home as a show-box. I interrupted his ejaculations by asking him to step below, where we could sit warm whilst I related my story, and I asked him to invite his boat's crew into the cabin, that I might regale them with a bowl of such liquor as I ventured to say had never passed their lips in this life. On this he went to the side, and— hailing the men ordered all but one to step aboard and drink to the health of the lonesome sailor they had come across the word drink acted like a charm they instantly hauled upon the painter and brought the boat to the chains and tumbled over the side one of the negroes remaining in her they fell together in a body and surveyed me and the ship with a hundred marks of astonishment my lads said i my rig is a strange one but i'll explain all shortly the clothes I was cast away in are below, and I'll show you them. I'm no spectre, but as real as you, though I have gone through so much that, if I am not a ghost, it is no fault of the old ocean, but owing to the mercy of God. My name is Paul Rodney, and I'm a native of London. You, sir, says I, addressing the long man, are, I presume, the master of the Susan Tucker. At your service— "'Josiah Tucker is my name, and that ship is my wife, Susan.' "'Captain Tucker, you are. Men, will you please step below?' says I. "'The weather promises fair. I have much to tell, and there is that in the cabin which will give you patience to hear me.' I descended the companion stairs, and they all followed, making the interior that had been so long silent ring with their heavy tread, whilst from time to time a gruff, hoarse whisper broke from one of them but superstition lay strong upon their imagination, and they were awed and quiet. The daylight came down the hatch, but for all that the captain was darksome. I waited till the last man had entered, and then said, Before we settle down to a bowl and a yarn, captain, I should like to show you this ship. It'll save me a deal of description and explanation, if you'll be pleased to take a view. Lead on, mister, said he, but we shall have to snap our eyelids and raise fire in that way, for dern defy, for one, can see in the dark. I fetched three or four lanthorns, and, lighting the candles, distributed them among the men, and then, in a procession, headed by the captain and me, we made the rounds. 
I had half cleared the arms room, but there were weapons enough left, and they stared at them like yokels in a booth. I showed them the cookhouse and the forecastle, where the deck was still littered with clothes and chests and hammocks, and, after carrying them aft to the cabins, gave them a sight of the hold. I never saw men more amazed. They filled the vessel with their exclamations. They never offered to touch anything, being too much awed, but stepped about with their heads uncovered, as quietly as they could, as though they had been in a crypt, and the influence of strange and terrifying memorials was upon them. I also showed them the clothes I had come away from the Laughing Mary in, and, that I might submit such an aspect to them as should touch their sympathies, I whipped off the cloak and put on my own pilot-cloth coat. There being nothing more to see, I led them to the cook-room, and there brewed a great hearty bowl of brandy-punch, which I seasoned with lemon, sugar, and spices into as relishable a draught as my knowledge in that way could compass, and, giving every man a pannikin, bade him dip and welcome, myself first drinking to them with a brief speech, yet not so brief, but that I broke down toward the close of it, and ended with a dry sob or two. They would have been unworthy their country and their calling not to have been touched by my natural manifestations of emotion. Besides, the brandy was an incomparably fine spirit, and the very perfume of the steaming bowl was sufficient to stimulate the kindly qualities of sailors who had been locked up for months in a greasy old ship, with no diviner smells about than the stink of the tryworks. The captain, standing up, called upon his men to drink to me, promising me that he was very glad to have fallen in with my schooner, and then, looking at the others, made a sign, whereupon they all fixed their eyes upon me and drank as one man, every one emptying his pot and inverting it as a proof, and fetching a rousing sigh of satisfaction. This ceremony ended, I began my story, beginning with the loss of the Laughing Mary, and proceeding step by step. I told them of the dead body of Mendoza, but said nothing about the Frenchman and the mate, and the Portugal boatswain, lest I should make them afraid of the vessel, and so get no help to work her. As to acquainting them with my recovery of Tassard, after his stupor of eight and forty years, I should have been mute on that head in any case, for so extraordinary a relation could, from such people, have earned me but one of two opinions, either that I was mad and believed in an impossibility, or that I was a rogue and dealt in magic, and to be vehemently shunned. Yet there were wonders enough in my story without this, and I recited it to a running commentary of all sorts of queer Yankee exclamations. There were seven seamen, and a captain, and I made nine, and we pretty nearly filled the cook-room. T'was a scene to be handled by a Dutch brush. We were a shaggy company, in several kinds of rude attire, and the crimson light of the furnace, whose playing flames darted shadows through the steady light of the lanthorns, caused us to appear very wild. The mariners' eyes gleamed redly, as their glances rove round the place, and, had you come suddenly among us, I believe you would have thought this band of pale, fire-touched, hairy men, with the one ebon visage among them, rendered the vessel a vast deal more ghostly than ever she could have been shown when sailing along with me alone on board. They were a good deal puzzled when I told them of the mines I had made and sprung in the ice. They reckoned the notion fine, but could not conceive how I had, single-handed, broken out the powder-barrels 
gotten them over the side, and fixed them. Why, said I, t'was slow, heavy work, of course, but a man who labors for his life will do marvelous things. It is like the jump of a hunted stag. True for you, says the captain. A swim of two miles spends me in pleasurin', but I've swum eight miles to save my life, and stranded fresh as a new-hooked cod. What's your intention, sir? To sail the schooner home, said I, if I can get help. She's too good to abandon. She'll fetch money in England. Ay, it shows. Yes, and as a coalman, rig her modernly, and carry your forecastle deck into the head, Captain, and she's a brave ship, fit for a Baltimore eye. He stroked down the hair upon his chin. Dip, Captain, dip, my lads. There's enough of this to drown ye in the hold, said I, pointing to the bowl. Come, this is a happy meeting for me. Let it be a merry one. Captain, I drink to the Susan Tucker. Sir, your servant, here's to your sweetheart, be she wife or maid. Bill, jump on deck and take a look around. See to the boat. One of the men went out. Captain, said I, you are a full ship? That's so. Found home? Right away. You have men enough and to spare. Lend me three of your hands to help me to the Thames, and I'll repay you thus. There should be near a hundred tons of wine and brandy, of exquisite vintage, and choice with age beyond language in the hold. Take what you will of that freight. There'll be ten times the value of your lay in your pickings, modest as you may prove. Help yourself to the clothes in the cabin and forecastle. They will turn to account. For the men you will spare, and who will volunteer to help me, this will be my undertaking. The ship and all that is in her to be sold on her arrival, and the proceeds equally divided. Shall we call it a thousand pounds apiece? Captain, she's well found. Her inventory would make a list as long as you. I'd name a bigger sum. But here she is. You shall overhaul her hold and judge for yourself. I watched him anxiously. No man spoke, but every eye was upon him. He sat pulling down the hair on his chin, then jumping up on a sudden and extending his hand, he cried, Shake! It's a bargain if the men'll gin. I'll gin, exclaimed a man. There was a pause. "'And me,' said the negro. I was glad of this, and looked earnestly at the others. "'Is she tight?' said a man. "'As a bottle,' said I. They fell silent again. "'Joe Wilkinson and Washington Cromwell. Them two giants,' said the captain. "'Bullies. He wants a third. Don't speak altogether.' The man named Bill at this moment returned to the cook-room, and reported all well above. My offer was repeated to him, but he shook his head. This is the horn, mates, said he. There's a deal o' water tween this and the Tums. How do she sail? No man knows. I want none but willing men, said I. Americans make as good sailors as the English. What an English seaman can face any of you can. There is another negro in the boat. Will you let him step aboard, Captain? He may join. A man was sent to take his place. Presently he arrived, and I gave him a cup of punch. "'Splain the business to him, sir,' said the captain, filling his pannikin. "'His name's Billy Pitt.' I did so, and when I told him that Washington Cromwell had offered, he instantly said, "'All right, massa. I'll be abia.' This was exactly what I wanted, and had there been a third negro, I'd have preferred him to the white man. "'But how are you going to navigate this craft home with three men?' said the man, Bill, to me. "'There'll be four. We shall do.' The fewer the more dollars, hey, Wilkinson? He grinned, and Cromwell broke into a ventral laugh. They seemed very well satisfied, and so was I. 
End of chapter 27. Recording by Angela Jeffries, Shelbyville, Illinois.